1: A couple of months back when the PA Grand Jury Report sexual abuse Catholic Church story uh, came into full blossom, Kath and I talked about this at length, but to be honest, we never once talked to an active Catholic priest, and we're going to continue that same way today, although we do have a Catholic priest in studio with us today, Father Lou Valone, who is, is with us, but Father Lou just retired four days ago. On Monday. On Monday. <laughs>
2: We're so happy you're celebrating with us, Lou. Well,
3: it's, I couldn't think of anybody else I'd rather do it with. Thanks so much.
1: <laughs> so, Lou, we're going to get into the specifics about the PA grand jury report and all that whole and thing. And the
2: latest news that the U.S. Justice Department is investigating the Catholic Church.
1: All that. But, you know, um, in a federal way. I appreciate your time here and your willingness to join us here to have a, a, an honest conversation about what it is to be a priest. But, you know, I'm interested in you, the man. Uh, would you go back and talk about. Your journey into your faith, and then how you found your way into the priesthood.
3: Well, giving my age bracket, it's a very common one. Okay, I'm a baby boomer, uh, uh, born after the war, 1947. That was the time when the church, especially in the United States and in this area, was exploding. Okay, guys come back from the war, had kids, uh, and so the church um, not only provided worship, the Catholic Church provided life experience. Catholic education, schools, socialization, everything. 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 So I was baptized in the Catholic Church. I went to Catholic schools. At that time, uh, I think every Catholic young man thought about the priesthood. Uh, And so after eighth grade, I entered the seminary at the age of 13, Um, not really knowing what I was doing, uh, but it was a Kind of a vision, kind of a goal, and yeah. our seminary system was set up that you had, if you entered when I did, you had 12 years. Of seminary. Of, it's 12 years of seminary. Wow. Formation, education, discernment, and um, maybe one out of eight guys, Went one through. out of ten, wound up being ordained, but it was great early formation in the faith, and so we wound up, the greater contribution of our seminaries was not to the priesthood. It was to the laity. Hmm. All right. So. Uh, Since
2: nine out of ten people ended up out as, of ten lay people. Were, as lay people.
3: As lay people. But it right?
1: formed some strong, holy men.
3: Uh, strong, holy men, uh, men of the church, became family men, good friendships, you know, that lasted forever. So um, I've been a priest for almost 46 years, but I have 12 years in the business before mm-hmm. that. Now. Wow. Hmm. So it's 58 years in the business. Uh, but through that process of discernment, of education, of formation, Um, If, in fact, God did call you, and we call it a vocation, it's not your idea, it's God's idea. He calls you to it. It's your choice to say yes or no. So uh, that if you say yes, I want to pursue it, you go through the system, you go through the formation, you go through the education, and um, as long as you're saying yes, if, in fact, the bishop calls you, coordination to, to the priesthood that's the seal or guarantee
1: that it was god's will for you i see so to look back at when you were first ordained as a young man and to see yourself now retired just four days the cataclysmic changes that have happened in the culture and especially in the church i mean you could never have imagined that
3: oh i absolutely this wasn't the cruise i signed up for <laughs> <laughs> right. uh the church that i was entering uh, back and I entered the seminary in 1961 was prior to the Second Vatican Council. So all my formation oh, wow. was in Latin, Latin liturgy, man. all the Latin liturgy, all the churches, the perfect society. It's <laughs> monolithic. Um, at that time, the Diocese of Pittsburgh had almost a million Catholics. It had uh, over 300 parishes. It had almost 600 active diocesan priests. Okay, it was um, the perfect society.
1: So mirror that today, a million active members in the Catholic Church, in the diocese, what, what are the numbers today?
3: Today, we're claiming 600,000 Catholics, but that's mostly cultural. Uh-huh. On a given weekend, latest status that I saw is approximately 135,000 in church.
1: How many priests, how many parishes?
3: Wow. Um, okay, so par- the parishes were first cut from about 320 down to about 212, 25 years ago. Currently, there's 188 parishes that are now in 57 groupings. So, uh, because partially because the number of active clergy is below 150, so there's there's only about on a given Sunday there's only about one fifth the number of people in church. There's only about half the number of parishes. There's only a quarter of the number of the priests. Wow! That there once were, and so you've had that whole. Um, If you looked at it in stasis, that perfect society of the 50s and 60s is like totally gone, and now we're almost back to uh, missionary numbers, if you will.
2: So, Lou, what does that make you think? I mean, how do you reflect on that?
3: Well, the Catholic Church claims to be the original, genuine, and authentic uh, Christian church founded by Jesus, which means we claim to have been around for 2,000 years. Um, there's nothing new under the sun, <laughs> all right? Mm-hmm. So we are dependent upon a belief in the words of Jesus to Peter. You're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, he says the devil won't win the battle, uh, the war. Doesn't say he doesn't get his battles. <laughs> and so the church has gone through um, in its 2,000 years from the early persecutions the early heresies, the times of the uh, East-West split, the Great Schism, the time of the Protestant Reformation, um, the church is always being assailed by evil, and we lose some battles. And so right now, it looks like in this cycle, we're on the downside of one of the battles with evil. Here in the States. Here in the States. Well, anywhere in the world. But when, you know, when Jesus said, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against it the church will survive he didn't say the church will survive in any given geographic Mm -hmm. uh, place so first six centuries the church spread through the greco-roman empire but it also spread through africa especially northern africa so saint augustine was african okay Uh, um the the church was active and alive spreading through the african continent until the islamic jihad came around and totally wiped it out yeah and so we have long list of names of dioceses, and which are now only piles of rocks in the desert. And those dioceses are given as titular dioceses to auxiliary bishops. There's no longer diocese there. There are no longer Catholics there. But we're at one time. I see. So just like uh, um, you might have an auxiliary bishop whose diocese is Roshi Krusha, which is in the middle of the African desert, someday some african bishop uh the auxiliary of lagos nigeria his titular diocese might be pittsburgh hmm. because there are no catholics or church left in pittsburgh
1: i see okay so as a young man ordained in 1961 obviously you no the i entire went to the suite.
3: seminary i went to the seminary in 61 oh forgive me i was ordained in 1973 okay so i was information during the upheaval of the second vatican the council culture changes yeah i watched the church go from this um, frozen in amber perfect society to one where Pope John the 23rd, St. Pope John the 23rd said, let's throw open the windows and let's bring the church, you know, into the modern times. So uh, the liturgy was, you know, put into indigenous languages, um, uh, various other activities, not changes of doctrine, not changes of dogma, not changes of what we believe but changes how we are supposed to communicate that to the world
1: uh-huh. communication and interaction right right so you i mean i remember whenever the priest turned around that was cataclysmic we we could, we, we used to see the back of the priest only during mass right and that was
3: that was symbolic gestures the the, the latin mass was nonverbal communication mostly hmm. because it came up um, um, people couldn't read yeah people couldn't read so your liturgical colors nonverbal communication <laughs> Uh, uh, the vestments that the priest wore, nonverbal communication, all right? The smells. Uh, the, the, yeah, the smells and bells, you know, the incense and sure. the songs. So at that time, the uh, paradigm was the priest stood as the bridge between the people and God, and he was the funnel for their prayers. Hence, everybody was looking at God, okay? So that's why the priest's back was to the people, because everybody was facing trying to face Mm -hmm. god except like where's god (laughs) all right there's that's there's not that direction right and so a different uh um um multi-layered interpretation of liturgy comes about that god is transcendent he's out there but god is also imminent he's in here so he's within the circle so he's so which direction do you face so that circular direction is, is a little bit more of a better nonverbal communication of the search for God. We don't just look outward for God. We look inward as individuals, but we have to look at each other. Yes, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. So
1: 1973, obviously a lot of changes in the life of your priesthood. Uh, let's uh, skip forward and, and look at what's happened with the PA grand jury sexual uh, report and all that.
2: Yeah, because in 1973, uh, you know, a lot of these incidents were happening yeah. in Pennsylvania. Yeah. So, how Sec- does that work in your life, Lou? I
1: mean, you know, when you hear, you know, you're a guy talking to other priests, and I'm sure in your in your time in your ministry, you heard a lot of stories.
3: Well, actually, we didn't. Okay, this thing was like when it it, it first broke on our consciousness. In the mid '80s, hmm. that there was uh, this type of abuse going on. One of the most famous national cases was Gotha, down in Lafayette, Louisiana. A guy by the name of Porter in Fall River. These things started surfacing, um, and you know the church was completely um, I'm, I'm, I'm taken by surprise by it because this had been a uh, this going on had been a very buried thing. All right. Um, When it came onto our consciousness in the 80s, the bishops tried to address it, but they were um, rather ignorant and and naive. They didn't know the extent of this that was going on. Nobody did. We're only finding out the extent now. It was almost like a plague. They've charted, um, now that we know from the report, and then there was a John Jay study published in 2006. John Jay studied... um, accusations from 1950 to 2002 the pa report studied from uh 1947 to 2017 there was kind of similarities in in what they found about who the abusers were there's a profile um that a, a the bulk a plurality of those who abused where people were who were born in the 30s and early 40s, prior to the Second World War, were ordained in the 60s or early 70s, just prior to at the time the Second Vatican Council, who acted out in the 70s and the 80s. You have a plateau of accusations such as this, going back to the, you know, 1900s. said It's at a plateau, plateau. All of a sudden there's a spike in the 70s and the 80s. It, like, explodes as though someone caught a virus what is that nobody knows because when the 80s come out they all of a sudden plummeted and from the 90s on you're back at the same numbers that you had in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s it was like a disease like like somebody caught a virus and all of a sudden there's this explosion of this acting out uh, which has dropped off for example Washington DC just uh, listed the names of their priests who were accused they listed 23 names going back to the 40s and in their report in washington dc there's not been a new accusation in 20 years hmm. every one of these names the events occurred prior to like
1: 1995 hmm. now see when I read the newspaper I mean I just read the paper the other day there was a priest in Erie who was you know a, a, accused right. it seems to me that since the report's been out there's been a spate of these this priest and that priest okay
3: so because this is going back all right when you when you ask when did this occur
2: Oh, you're saying that they 30 occurred years then, ago got
3: 35 it. years ago okay but
2: they weren't five years ago
3: they weren't now there still were some but they're very very few
2: okay so what accounts for that?
3: No idea. I, we need some scientific method. I mean, I can give you a theological answer.
2: Okay, what's your theological answer? Well,
3: they all decided to get like real active. Okay, you had the Second Vatican Council come along. You had the Church trying to renew itself to evangelize. You had ecumenism, in which the entire Christian community, instead of fighting with each other, began reaching out to each other. You had all sorts of hopeful things on the horizon for the Church, and for the Church's people could we heal the split of the reformation and become one christian family again all right could we with our news with the catholic church you know uh, um in leadership be rallying you know the battle cry for all those who care in the name of christ um in the uh, after the vatican council 60s early 70s there was tremendous hope that maybe we can erase what happened during the crusades that maybe we could get over the splits during the heresies I don't think the devil liked that, all right? Mm-hmm. So, so, like, theologically, um, while we were looking up, uh, the devil was out there to drag us down.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, this is a theological thing, okay? Um, we have to remember that the abusers, those who abused, weren't simply committing sins. They were committing crimes. Mm-hmm. So this, you have to look at this phenomenon multidimensionally. Can I explain any of it? can can our psychologists explain it? Can we find something in, in in the social realm? I don't know because this is actually pretty recent. I mean I grew up as okay I know the priests who are accused in, in Pittsburgh because I know all the priests in Pittsburgh since I was ordained the guys before. would I've ever guessed that this guy was doing that no really so. No I, I, no, I would have never guessed that was one on. With any a,
2: of them, would you have guessed?
3: Well, you know, priests are um, not your normal mm-hmm. human being, all right? right? Um, we're all a little eccentric. We're all mm-hmm. a little odd. You right? live in a different life. We are living a different life. So if this guy, you say, this guy was a little odd here. But when you look at what led them in or the circumstances they found themselves in, that allowed the acting out to occur when you were a newly ordained priest you're the youngest you automatically got the youth group you automatically Mm -hmm, went to teach in the school you automatically taught the altar service okay so if you say well this guy you know is he's he's 40 years old and he's hanging out with 12 year olds and the response would be yeah that's his job Mm
2: -hmm, right so there was nothing unusual about Who he was associating with or what it looked like?
3: Nope. The circumstances. And, of course, you were always, you know, you were entrusted with all of this. Right. Okay? So the um, abuse, the the actions. You know, I've said about the people, um, our lady, our, our faithful. When they found out about the abusers, their hearts were broken that this was happening. I mean, it broke people's hearts that this had happened. But it didn't engender despair or anger in them because sinners and 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 we teach you know uh, metanoia people's hearts were broken that this stuff was occurred
1: but well, you know people are really angry because it feels as though well we're just moving that guy down the road
3: well that's anger they were their hearts were broken by the abusers they were angry at the people in power who covered it up and continued it mm-hmm. this thing could have been caught short in 1985 by our church and the bishops in america there was a report um doyle who was a canon lawyer uh who who is a lawyer and uh, peterson who was a psychologist um who told the bishops in 1985 when this first surfaced a big report to the the national conference of bishops and said this stuff's going on all over the place better do something you're right you need to step in like right now and the bishops didn't believe it and didn't do it i mean they come up with five guidelines said that bishops could voluntarily um, follow these guidelines if you find abuse reported
1: to the... But who wanted the, to do that? They, they didn't do it. Yeah.
2: So now we're 40 years later and...
1: Here we are. Yeah. We need to take a quick break. Father Lou Valone is with us. We're talking about the PA Grand Jury Sexual Abuse Report, what it is to be a priest, the lack of uh, faith in the culture, all that. Stick around. It's The Ride Home with John and Kathy. Back in a few minutes. Hey, welcome back. We're talking with Catholic priest Father Lou Valone about a lot of things, about what it is to be ordained in the 70s and see the culture now and look at the church itself, uh, specifically more so recently here about the P.A. Grand Jury Sex Report and all the heartbreak and furor and uh, – f- all that, of course, if you've been tracking along. Kath and I have talked about this ad nauseum and followed along closely. And so we really appreciate Father Lou coming mm-hmm. in and having this conversation. Lou, one of the big things I think that came out of this conversation, which was in the back of my head because of some conversations I had as a young man, but which is still surprising and shocking to me, and I don't think people don't want to talk about it because it is so inflammatory, but they got to talk about it, is this concept of the Lavender Mafia. Uh can you talk about that, about the Catholic Church as an enclave for for gay men supporting each other, and that was an outgrowth of this sexual abuse? Is that even a reality?
3: Is there a reality that there's a higher percentage of uh, same-gender attracted people in the priesthood than the general population? Yeah, that's a reality. I mean, you just look at it, okay? It's an all-male uh, institution, the priesthood is. You go to all-male seminaries. Um Because of our celibacy thing, okay, so let's go back to my day when I entered in the 60s. Okay, I entered after eighth grade. Back then, if you were, you know, in grade school, if you were in high school, maybe even college, and you didn't show interest in girls, they didn't say you're gay. They said, maybe you got to have a vocation.
2: Hmm. Interesting. All right,
3: so our discipline of celibacy kind of tainted our uh, uh, doctrine of vocational call. I see. All right? So there is no opprobrium to being homosexual. You know, I tell people I'm a raging heterosexual. You know, I love women. Yeah. But I'm celibate and chaste. I can't do anything about it. So it doesn't matter what you're chaste from. Okay? Mm-hmm. Men, sure. women, dogs, oak trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just not going there. Just chaste. Right. Chastity is chastity. Okay? So are there a higher number of, of gay men in the priesthood than the general population? Absolutely. Absolutely is there a higher amount of sexual activity i don't know doesn't necessarily have to be all right but human beings are social animals and so we used to talk about in the seminary the jocks and the rosary makers <laughs> the guys who got involved in sports okay and the guys who made rosaries for the missions and center who are you drawn to you're drawn to those like yourself sure all right so uh would guys who were gay and discovering that about themselves in the seminary or maybe not discovering it about themselves till after they were ordained would they have a tendency to draw towards each other yes okay i draw towards guys who like to go see the steelers yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> all right does that mean that sexual activity is a part of that no not necessarily does that mean it has anything to do with the abuse Well, the scientists, uh, John Jay, tells us absolutely not. There is not a correlation. Say, yeah, but 80% of the victims were male. You were in an all-male culture. These were victims of opportunity. And there's a serious question whether the abuse of minors is actually a sexual situation. Rape is not a sexual Mm -hmm. action. It's an action of violence. The abuse of a minor may not be a sexual situation it may be a situation of control it may be a situation of violence it may be a situation of acting out again we've not studied these things uh uh, uh in a calm enough atmosphere so do i admit 80 percent of the the 100 percent of the abusers were male 80 percent of the abused were male does that mean it was homosexual not necessarily so all right or the the lavender mob, the gay mafia, are they in control of anything? Well, you know, we're the jocks in control. <laughs> we're the rosary makers in control. I mean, who's in control? If you're drawn to people like yourself, uh, there's the enclave. Yeah. So so here, sorry, hmm, right? So who are you going to look out for?
1: Yeah, your group. You might try look
3: out for your tribe, and that's and that's the word that I've been using. Tribe. There yeah. are tribes in the priesthood. Yeah.
1: Or like any social organization, like
3: any other social organization, right. They're Trumps.
2: We need to take a break, uh, but when we come back, I want to ask you, Father Lou, about the split between clergy and lady. What clericalism means, and what perhaps we can learn from studying the last forty or fifty or so years.
1: Thanks, Father Lou Valone's with us. We're we'll back in a few minutes. We're talking about the Catholic Church. Welcome back. Father Lou Valone is with us. We're talking about the Catholic Church, the pre-sex scandal, all that and more.
2: And news just breaking this afternoon that the Department of Justice has subpoenaed at least seven of the eight Catholic dioceses in Pennsylvania as part of an investigation into abuse by priests, the first federal investigation of its kind. Um, Lou, talk to us about the word clericalism. I have to tell you, it's a word I never heard of until about three months ago.
3: All right. I have to go back to Scripture and theology before I can bring that in focus for you. Uh, God sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Christ, the anointed one, to become priest, prophet, and king. He changed the whole relationship, covenant, testament agreement with God, in which he said, no, not one tribe or Levites and priests, but all of my people will be a holy people, a priestly people, a kingly people. So the sacrament of priesthood is baptism. Each and every person who is baptized is a priest. Baptism in our Catholic system is what we call an ontological sacrament. It changes your being. Once you're baptized, it can't be redone and it can't be undone. (laughs) This is it, your being's changed. Confirmation changes your being when you receive the Holy Spirit. Can't be redone, can't be undone. Your being's changed. Ordination to the service of the community is an ontological sacrament. Mm. It can't be undone. It can't be redone. But the priesthood is a job, not a status. Certain people from the priesthood of Christ the faithful are called forth to do a job on behalf of service of everybody else. Clerics. I see. Okay. So – are clerics different? In one sense, they are. Just as someone unconfirmed is different from someone who's confirmed, just as someone who's you know unbaptized is different from someone who's ordained is different from someone who's unordained. But it's different, not better or worse. It's a complementarity. So everyone is Christ faithful. So if a Lutheran minister baptizes a Lutheran kid – That Lutheran kid in our theology is as much a priest as I am having retired after 46 years because the priesthood is rooted in our baptism. But the ordination is a separate call to do a separate job. I see.
2: But it's not a level of holiness. Absolutely Or a marker of it.
1: So so during the break you said our cancer is clericalism.
3: Right. Clericalism is taking that and pushing it uh, reductio ad absurdum pushing that difference between the lady and clerics to an absurd degree as though they were different species
1: holier than thou
3: holier uh, better uh, closer all right that that is cancerous and uh, the pope just told the jesuits that when he was uh, on his, uh, um, his last thing it's clericalism uh, um, destroys the body of christ okay it's like saying and using Pauline, you know, metaphors and terminology, that the hand can reject the feet, <laughs> that the head can reject the heart.
2: But the essence of it is that we need each other.
3: Absolutely. That's the only way we exist. And so just like cancer is a healthy cell that is run amok, okay, and, and destroys the body, clericalism is a healthy thing. Those of us who are set aside for service to the others becoming unhealthy and running mm-hmm. him up. I see. So what's at the basis of the uh, of, of the um, abuse crisis? Clericalism. You know, why did clerics get away with it for so long? You know, why did priests get away? Why did people bury it? Why did people not talk about it? Why didn't they turn them in? Why did bishops put on it? It's clericalism. And clericalism
1: is its not only a cancer.
3: It, it's a morally sinful uh, state in and of itself. Uh,
1: is... Is married priests or women priests a cure? No,
3: we have laity who are clericalized. <laughs> hmm. Okay, it's an attitude, it's a mentality. There's, there's, there's no uh, 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 women priests, married priests, whatever. That's not the issue because you can corrupt anything. A, a married person. <laughs> okay,
2: but you're, but you're right. Reading through the grand jury report, as John and I have, we've read through the the whole sad, thing. sad mm-hmm. saga of it. Um, repeatedly over and over again it was people saying i told my parents that the priest was doing this and they didn't believe me right because it's the priest or i told my brother and he didn't believe me or whatever or i was afraid to tell anybody because it was the priest right
3: and that was there's a certain amount of respect that is due to the office sure of course okay but the person who holds the office has got to earn his own respect so if someone violates his office, right, you don't respect him. He violated it. But clericalism is an overinvestment in the respect of the office, forgetting that it's a human being holding it.
2: Got it. So instead of us investing our respect and honor in person who has the office and is wearing the outfit, we should be reserving it for an individual who's earned it, you're saying?
3: Well, he has got to earn it. I'm, I'm wearing Just – I come from a law enforcement family. Okay, my sister was a commander in the Pittsburgh Police Force. My brother-in-law was chief of police in Pittsburgh and a cousin in the Secret Service. They understand that the same as we understand. Mm -hmm. You got good cops, you got bad cops. Because there's bad cops doesn't give you leeway to disrespect the badge or the law. But it doesn't mean you automatically uh, uh, give the bad cop leeway to beat up on people. Right. Same thing with priests.
1: Or ascend to a higher order because you're wearing the badge. Right. Right. We'll take a quick break. Father Lou with us. We've got a smidge left, so stick around with us, please. It's the Ride Home with John and Kathy here on Word FM. Welcome back. We've got just a little bit of time with Father Lou Valone. He is a retired Catholic priest, certainly enjoying our time here.
2: Just this afternoon, the Department of Justice announced that it subpoenaed at least seven of the eight Catholic dioceses in Pennsylvania as part of an investigation into abuse by priests. And so we're very happy that Lou's here to talk about this. So, Father Lou, um, each one of us, if we're honest about who we are is a mass of sinful desires and sinful actions, and none of us deserve any position we have. No, right, absolutely. And and the more honest that we can be about who we really are inside, I feel like the safer we are, because we're not trying to pose as anything.
3: Well, this is Pope Francis since he's been in, has talked many times about the difference between sin and corruption. He tells us over and over again, never despair that you're a sinner. God forgives sinners over and over, and he quotes, uh, his, okay. says, you're not in any trouble because you're a sinner. He says, but when you forget that you are, and forget that you need to ask for forgiveness, and think that you don't need to make progress and change, he says, now you're corrupt, and now you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. All right? There's only been four human beings who were created without sin. Adam and Eve, Jesus, and in our Catholic theology, his mother Mary. Adam and Eve blew it, and they did sin. Every one of us, basic definition, we're sinners. What does God expect of us? He expects us to battle. He expects us to try. God doesn't demand that we succeed. He just demands that we try. He loves us for our efforts, not for our accomplishments. But if we ever forget that we're in that battle and think we don't have to fight it, now we're corrupt, and now we're condemned. I'm into that. And so what are we going through here? Maybe there were those in our church, maybe our institution values itself had forgotten that although we are divinely instituted, we're still a human institution,
1: and hence the corruption. So just as things die, there's also rebirth. Right, and that's what we look forward to for God the resurrection us. of it. Amen. Thanks, Lou. Really appreciate the time here with us. For your transparency, mm-hmm. for the conversation, we dig it. Yeah. It's my joy. Yeah, thanks. Ours as well.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for being with us today. If you want any more information about Father Lou, we're going to put some up on our on our uh, webpage, com. Also, you can find our podcast there, and uh, we'll do a clip of Lou's uh, conversation with us today. I bet New Mike will... Put that all together and make it all fancy and put that up online so you can see it on twitter or facebook and you can always find us on our website as i said john and kathy show very nice tomorrow if you have, but if you have some comments you want to make also how about twitter and facebook you can find us there for sure and on uh,
1: tomorrow's show emmanuel ike will be with us he is a character unto himself uh the father of joy ike who's a favorite of ours and as well. Peace
2: Ike, who's another favorite of ours and
1: he's got a fascinating story to tell mm-hmm. so that's uh, the friday edition of the right home we'll
2: also be talking about uh different races, different cultural backgrounds, and different understandings when it comes together in making music in church. Man, we don't like working together. Different colors. We're (laughs) bad at it, but we're going to try to get better tomorrow.
1: Hey, thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure. We'll see you tomorrow, God willing. Have yourself a great night. The Ride Home with John and Kathy,
3: a production of Word FM and Salem Communications.
0: Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells.